वेलकम टू सिंटॉक The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the realm of things. We'll attempt to dive into the subterranean realm of things to explore their ontology and their interrelationships with each other. We'll try to understand what a thing is and when a thing comes to be and when it ceases to be. Is it possible to understand things without the dictatorship or the mediation of human beings? What is the character of an archaeological artifact? What is a solid thing and what does it mean to be solid? Do things have a social life? We'll also speculate on the future of things, um, maybe over the next 500 to 1000 years and see if that relationship or that notion is likely to be any different. We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers around the table today. Professor Pushan Ayub, who is a senior professor at Tata Institute in Mumbai. He works in the area of nanoscience. Professor Satish Gurguris, who is from Columbia University in the US. He teaches and writes comparative literature and philosophy. and professor sharda shrinivasan who is from national institute of advanced studies in bangalore she works in the area of archaeological sciences archaeometallurgy and performance studies stati is maybe we set the ball rolling with you uh, okay. with the fairly basic question of what is a thing and um is it possible to even think about that or reflect on that question without the mediation of human beings what is a thing maybe you start there and we'll see how it goes right i would have to say that i i would sort of resist answering the question <laughs> in a straightforward <laughs> manner um in some ways there's always a presumption um when we begin to talk about things um it seems i i mean one could say that the realm of things does not get to talk itself you know uh, someone is talking about it uh, it's not expressive well no it may be expressive i mean you know it may radiate color for example um uh, and or 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 heat uh and so on but um but i think the 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 operative word is the two there are these two verbs one what is a thing and the other one is uh, talk which is really also what we're doing in the show mm-hmm. and um i i think that um my in some ways point of departure because there's many more things to be said but the point of departure is that there's that it's always mediated by obviously um you know human beings uh, that uh, that think think about things and um and and talk about them because they ca- they must deal with them they 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 cannot afford not to, to deal with them their existence is dependent on them right right and would you would you make any distinction between an object and a thing is 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 that something that yes philosophically obviously there is a distinction uh we don't need to go into you know that sort of uh, it is a basic philosophical uh, argument um 
again, it has to do, I think, primarily with language. An uh-huh. object is always uh, recognized as such through a, a system of uh, a semantic system. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's an object in language. Um, while um, a thing is, uh, it might be something that is not restricted just to language, but I'm not prepared to tell you exactly how it exceeds uh, language. Um, but that's that's as far as I would go uh, without really going into a kind of perhaps even pedantic discussion about the distinction. Right, right, right. And Sharda, when we when when you look at one of any of your archaeological artifacts, which has obviously been in existence but maybe not seen for a long, long time, uh, how does that speak to you? And uh, I mean, w- what does the mediation of a human being, such as an archaeologist, do to the thing, or is that is that entirely a subjective notion? Well, um, <clears throat> when you sort of look at the world of things, uh, it's it's also. Uh, uh, I guess a question of you know what this definition of thing really is, because uh, I mean of course if you go by all these you know the the, the lot of the the literature and the writing on it for instance uh, Bill Brown talking about the theory of things and so on and then there's this notion that uh, I mean an object to some extent defines something which is you know which has a certain function or whatever but I mean the thing comes into being when something else happens outside that system, for instance, your your car breaks down or whatever, those are the classic examples. But that sets me thinking then, then how do you actually define a thing in an archaeological context? Because uh, so many things were made uh, not necessarily to have that kind of, you know, uh, cause and effect sort of function aspect. I mean, if you look at the Egyptians, uh, you know, who believed in the afterlife and almost everything that they made was really to, to meant for this afterlife. And likewise, you know, the Chinese in, in Xi'an or whatever, this enormous armies of terracotta horses. They were all intended to, to go into an afterlife. So it's not really a thing. It, 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 it was not really an object that served any purpose in their lifetimes. So when does it become a thing in, in, in the way that you can theorize about? Is it when they've then been dug up so many you know centuries yeah. later or whatever and then put into museums and then they have some kind of agency where you know they draw people or tourists or whatever. So, so how does that translate into a thing? The whole thing is quite, I guess, complex. Um, and as far as, um, I mean, the impulse to make things, I mean, the fact that, you know, the older one, uh, 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 hominins were making tools 2.5 million years ago. But then it also t- it also tells you that the way in which, uh, I mean, the permanence of the artifact also uh, has a bearing on how we actually uh, project that history of things. Because mm-hmm. they may have been making, let's say, uh, some tools out of wood or other imperishable things, which, which just are not there in the record. But the minute that they start making stone tools, so at least now when we look back on it, there's a history of, you know, that's when uh, the, 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 the whole, th- maybe uh, the thing making began at that time or whatever. And likewise, the history of, you know, the, the, the materials that come into human use in a way dictates the way we understand uh, the different sort of uh, changes, uh, sort of uh, civilizational changes, whether it's Thomson's classification of the uh, Stone Age and the Bronze Age and, and the Iron Age and so on. So... Uh, the idea yeah, of you know, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because you you kind of split history up by things: just stone, bronze, iron. Exactly. That's very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And, and how how is a artistic artifact different from an everyday object? You just find a spoon or whatever the equivalent of a spoon yeah. in your archaeological diggings, vis-a-vis you know, let's say the Mohenjo-daro dancing girl or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
are they different in any manner which is substantial or interesting well um now that you mentioned the mohanjadaro uh, dancing girl um uh, i i well, i suppose it's kumaraswami who, who says that art is is not tangible in, in in the end you know what you there's something there's an intangible element to art i mean i don't know how we can describe it because uh, you know it ha- has a sort of life of its own i mean the mohanjadaro dancing girl is something somebody like marshall talks about how there's nothing like it really quite at that time and so uh, it seems to transcend that sense of materiality i think also uh, if you, uh, there's a very beautiful line uh, of akamaha devi who's this famous uh, 12th century kannada poetess who uh-huh. talks about how uh, you should weld but the welding should not be seen so it's almost as yeah. if the final product you know at least we talk about art the, the pain of the process behind it the pulling the, you know the 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 mining out the metal and and the working and everything forging all of that all of the activity that goes into it all that almost gets kind of that, that history of it is just not into there it yeah to, and and mm. it's just the final artifact that sort of stands test to me to all of that but our job as archaeologists then is to look at that artifact and then reconstruct those processes so it's almost like um, uh, a case of you know you know entropy and and the re- the, the way you know objects sort of decay or whatever it just moves in one direction i suppose and in but, a way you're uh, kind of piecing it back in yeah, the reverse direction yeah we're reversing yeah. a little bit to understand and also i think that, i mean archaeology also is a destructive process because that whole site or whatever is destroyed it no longer stays yeah. <laughs> so in fact that object doesn't have a chance then to maybe end up the way it would have the layers of rust or whatever that should have been built up over time all that has it hasn't had a chance for that to happen and if it's kept in a museum it's arrested at that point in time so there is that human intervention which which contributes to at that stage as well what the artifact is that's why i think that that we we already gone beyond the ontology uh question in yes. a more interesting way because you know things actually so uh, the object uh, needs a subject uh, there's the object always needs a subject that's what i said it's about language but the thing in many ways needs uh, or it, it, it's not just simply that it needs it it cannot avoid but being involved in what we call history or which is or time a thing you know, cannot in, avoid being involved in history yes it, it mm. decays i mean I, i mean at in some basic level uh, there is a certain times always uh, passes through it and in so far as it is part of of uh, let's say uh, uh, human life or 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 you know you know social life um that's in that sense uh that temporality is what we call history and and uh, and and uh it's a perfectly uh, it was you know very well demonstrated how uh it comes to mean what it means by virtue of having uh, you know undergone of uh, having undergone this uh, this uh, uh, own experience of time and then the interpretation by the archaeologist who comes to intervene or to come to, to encounter the thing at another juncture in time and so on and so forth so so i i certainly am much more interested in if we're going to use the word ontology at all and to in the historical ontology of things which is a little paradoxical because it means it's something that is always mutable and then is always historical ontology so i mean you're just tracing it back Well, I mean, you're tracing you, it back. You mean it more in the genealogy sense, as opposed to um, the archaeologist and the genealogist. Obviously, is is interested in piecing together. Yes, this 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 uh, uh, the passage of time through the various discontinuities and so on and so forth. But I think uh, when I'm talking about historical ontology, I, I would I'm not suggesting 
that we only look that we look at it only retrospectively. Uh-huh. But that insofar as a thing is part of a network uh-huh. of forces um, in the world, which, you know, and Pushan will probably tell us more about the physical elements of it. And I, I would actually include those, but we were talking essentially in social terms now. Um, then, then it means that uh, what we call historical ontology pertains to in its entire span. Not, you know, from the moment it enters into you know, the realm yeah. you know, of things, as it were. Yeah. It, is, it, is, uh, um, it p- becomes part of a certain flow, which I, which I see as historical ontology, meaning it, doesn't, it cannot be said to, ha- to be something at just a moment. So Shanda separate. was talking about welding things together in another context, and, you know, obviously, for a second, we visualize a statue coming together and, you know, a few pieces being welded together. I mean, are, is everything a thing and finally becomes a different thing? Well, I, I would like to be able to to to, to think that um, the integrity of a thing is always, in some ways, porous. I mean, it's open to uh, yeah. contact and counter intersection, uh, whatever would be the words that we would use sure. with other things, obviously, but uh, with which might mean other elements, the elements of nature and so on, uh-huh. but also the mediation of of. Um, of um, of human of the human animal and 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 which is as I said uh, you know engaged in the relation in a relation with things that is unavoidable. Interesting, interesting. Pushan, why don't we jump to you? What is a thing? And you know, I mean, you know, obviously, it seems like everything starts from being an atom or whatever, and obviously, one can keep going down and go to quarks and strings. But when does a thing first come to be? Is 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 an atom a thing? Is it something that? One can touch figuratively at least. Uh, uh, maybe I can answer it a little later. Sure. I'm slightly uh, already in uh, uncharted territory because uh, in uh, science we don't really distinguish between objects and things. Okay. So I would like to put it in a slightly more you know concrete uh, kind of framework, if okay. you allow me. Please. So what I understand, uh, what I learned from this uh, conversation already is that uh, an uh, object becomes a thing uh, depending on the functionality. So you have to define the function. When the function ceases to be, the, the object becomes a, becomes a thing. Yes. So let me try to make it a little more, uh, as I said, concrete. Okay. So I would uh, maybe try to associate that with a kind of, uh, you know, I w- I'm not very comfortable with the subjective nature of this uh, transition because, you know, if you look at one function, the object might become a thing. If you look at some other function, the object may still have been b- b- remained. That's so object. true, of course. I mean, so a broken spoon does something right, else better. Right, right, yeah. So you can a broken <laughs> drill can be used to hammer something in. Yes. Right. So <laughs> let me let me try to you know subjectivity is something that always uh, worries is slightly, the scientist. Slightly, in slightly you. worrying to to to, <laughs> a, to a sort of professional scientist. So I would like to. T- keep that little uh, little far away okay and i would do that by trying to maybe uh, you know uh, associate the object to thing uh, transition with a with what uh, you know in science is called a phase transition right so a phase transition is something like you know simple in simple terms liquid to solid or yes something like that but in this case it is uh, often an irreversible transformation in this case so if you say that you know many of these uh, transformations from object to thing can be mapped into a phase transformation. Then the phase transformation has specific properties. It involves a change in some physical or chemical property. And we can look at it this way, that the phase transition involves a change in property. The change in property, of course, involves a change in function. So this is a kind of missing link that the, the cause and so effect the is... change of property is yes, important. So the cause and effect is not uh, 
the cause and effect in this case is the change in property that is going to lead to the change in function. And we don't have to leave the function then subjective. Once we define the phase transition, we already know. So let me give an example of this. Yeah. So rather, I would say a striking example is, you know, things, it's something like rubber. If rubber. You cool it, yeah, if you cool it down, it sort of loses its elasticity. It becomes hard. Yeah. So that is a rather trivial thing. Its property but has changed. property has changed. So it has now stopped becoming a rubber in the sense that mm -hmm. you can't use it as an elastic band or you can't use it for, for doing things that a rubber normally does. Right. Now, this has very important uh, consequences. For example, the object-to-thing transformation in this case uh, led, to a, led to the Challenger disaster. Yeah. Okay, so the object, <laughs> the, the, the rubber, rubber o-ring became a hard object, hard thing, and that uh, led to the crash. Correct. So this that's is a very graphic. Yeah, out. that's a, that's a very graphic example of what an object-to-thing transformation can be if you look at it from the point of view of a simple phase transformation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it makes makes any sense to you uh, people. It maybe makes I'm, I'm sense. maybe I'm trivializing it, but uh, I would look at it this way. Interesting. Interesting. So would you like me to go over go also to the uh, to the nature of things, or maybe I'll come back a little later. No, why not? Go you, ahead. Go ahead. I think you know. Okay. I think a very fascinating question is that what is solid, um, or liquid for that matter, or gas mm -hmm. for that matter, because that just happens to be the state of matter. Yes. And uh, you know, I mean, at a at a very laymanish level, one wonders what is first solid, because you know whether it's ice or vapor or water, it's comprised of the same atomic structure and molecular structure, mm -hmm. but you know, in itself, H2O in this case is not solid or liquid or gas. So what exactly is a solid? So, uh, I mean, f from a very simple point of view, we, we look at a solid like, uh, like a substance w uh, which uh, has evolved from a gas or a liquid, which retains its shape. So if you, if you, if it, if you uh, define a shape for it, it will stay in that shape for a long time. A liquid doesn't have a shape of its own. It depends on the shape of the container. A gas doesn't have a shape at all. I mean, it, it can flow anywhere. But that's a very, very sort of, you know, trivial way of looking at it. Uh, let me try to say that... But how know, much do we need to break this pen down, for example, to get to a state which is non-solid, if you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, it's not, not an easy question to answer. Uh -huh. So first of, all, first of all, you know, the, the problem is that even whether you look at a solid or a liquid or a gas, a very large fraction of that is uh, sort of free space. So if you look at look at atoms, for example, atoms have a sort of uh, nucleus at the at the center. Yes. And it has free space around it because electrons don't really occupy space. Mm -hmm. They have a very small mass. It's like a charge cloud. Yes. So the nucleus, which is the only thing that carries the mass in the in the atom, is like a speck of dust in a, in a very large hall. So the rest of it is just just free space. And you, you know, add a lot of free space like that and you suddenly end up with a solid. So what is really happening? It's not that you have the, the, the solid has a really a very tangible surface from which a bullet can bounce off. Yeah. So what is really bouncing off is it's bouncing off some, some force fields. So you have very, very strong fields of forces, which is actually interacting with, with some other forces and they are repelling each other. So what is a solid surface? I mean, the solid surface is something that you can't define this way because, as I said, it's mainly, mainly empty space. But a solid has a, has a property that develops from atoms. An atom uh, doesn't have, uh, for example, color. It doesn't have... So you would think of solidity things, as yeah. a property. It's a property. It's a property and a solid has a, has a sum, sum total of many different properties. Mm -hmm. You look at all the properties and see how they develop. Because none of these properties are properties of atoms. 
So, uh, yeah. you know, like, like, as I said, color. Atom doesn't have color. Atom doesn't have smell. A solid has all that. A solid reflects light and atom, okay, it scatters light in, in a way, but it, it doesn't reflect light. Yeah. Now, again, Satish so, was talking about color yeah. a while ago. Mm-hmm. Now, is there color if there are no subjects looking so, at it? So, it is something like this, that you, you put, put together things. Mm-hmm. I'll, maybe at some time I will come to a, a question of self-organization because that's a very important matter in this case. Mm-hmm. Let me just uh, say that you know you have some kind of organization which takes place and atoms uh, go into into molecules. Molecules add up to form small clusters. They be- become bigger and form from nanoparticles. So when atoms, when you put uh, two or three atoms together, they are sort of geometrically packed together. They don't necessarily have the same structure as that, that of the solid. So, yeah. for example, if you have carbon atoms, you keep on adding carbon atoms to each other. They'll form a chain of carbon atoms. Yeah. Then after maybe 10 or 12 atoms, they'll form a ring. After maybe 20 atoms, and they'll form... all of this is self-organizing behavior. All of this is self-organizing. So, yeah. we'll, we'll come to the question of self-organizing maybe a little later. Sure. But just, sure. let us just assume it for the time being. Sure. And then these rings come together and they form maybe solid spheres like um, the fullerene molecule, which you may have heard of, which yes. is like a solid soccer C60. ball kind of C60. Yeah. Then, uh, even then, it is not like solid uh, carbon. Solid carbon is, you know, either diamond or graphite or something like that, which is not this. Then you you need at least maybe you know ten thousand atoms for it to come together to to look like a proto solid, to look to, to have some properties which are going to develop into that of a solid. Yeah. But what you really need is that you need a unit cell that you can repeat and you can get a solid. Yeah. But you don't uh, the, the 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 carbon clusters or any atomic cluster doesn't have that uh, unit cell. So the structure is what de- determines all these functions. And the structure comes only when you have, you know, a unit cell may have some something like two or three or four atoms, but you need to have at least uh, a few thousand atoms for the unit cells to develop and look like that of a solid. Which and also then you build up uh, yeah. a solid. Which also brings us once to the realization that how, let's say, in, in antiquity and such like, were they able to do, I mean, today we're able to study all of this down to such minute, but the fact that some very sophisticated processes were being employed to make and manufacture things without all of this high science is just yeah. sort of empirical I mean, they, understanding. They no clue that there were atoms For example, the uh, since you're talking about phase transitions, uh, some of my own work has been on this very interesting set of alloys called um, uh, rotten-quenched beta bronzes, which is basically a bronze of 23% tin, uh-huh. which uh, uh, was really developed and used to, uh, to very extraordinary skill, especially in the megalithic uh, context in, you know, in the Deccan in southern India and all that. And this is a culture which really didn't have... You know, many habitation sites and this and that. This is about 800 BC or, or whatever. And we know it was not being done by the Greeks since because there's an account of uh, uh, Alexander's general Nearchus where he says where he says that that uh, that the Indians use um, uh, a type of vessel which shatters when drops. The point is that this 23% uh, beta bronze uh, normally bronze of a higher tin composition is very uh, brittle, so uh-huh. you normally get only low Lotin bronzes and the Greeks. The Greeks did a lot of forging of you know lotin uh, bronze. But uh, the the advantage of this twenty three percent tin bronze was that actually it, it gets actually quasi super plastic at that composition. So it could be forged to extraordinary thinnesses down to about 0.2 millimeters thinness. And then they would quench it so that the brittleness was reduced. So that quenching process was also very important because that's how you get the formation of this martensitic beta phase. And uh, then it has also a very golden luster. So 
they you know polished it and things like that and uh, as i said the, the rim thinness is about 0.2 millimeters with oh, wow. these perforations and what were they using these for it's really hard to imagine because it must have did it have a ritual purpose and all the rest of it and the reason why again we know that uh, you know this this is very likely being done in in the indian subcontinent and in southern india is because I was able to find that in Kerala, there are still craftsmen, these kamalar, who still make these, uh, you know, these autopathrums of this, the same method of rot hammering and forging and quenching and all that. Because earlier it had been thought that it may, it may well have been imported because, you know, there's being such a sophisticated bronze working tradition and, you know, what were the megalithic people doing with such sophistication? But I think we need to rethink the fact that you need, uh, you know, a great civilization to make great artifacts because even today your itinerant craftsmen have that skill and all the rest of it. So, uh, you know, again, uh, this thing thing of what is uh, a luxury uh, good, you know, the idea of things as something which, you know, which, which even ordinary people can engage in and make and do. I mean, when we say ordinary, I mean, they are extraordinary people, really, but it's a sort of subaltern way of looking at things as well. So, yeah. Are, is the, I mean, as we currently live with the modern objects around us, are we going to leave a trace at all? Are we going to? Leave a trace, archaeological trace at all? Oh, that's interesting. Now we've gone into the future, have we? Well, one thing I do know is that apparently I think that one thing that will, I wonder what they will make of it when they see it uh, many centuries from now on. But the CD-ROM, you know, that's a polycarbonate plastic, <laughs> which was non-degradable. And so they're going to see all these CD-ROMs and they're going to wonder, did they use it for ritual or did they use it for <laughs> what? Because I think they would think of us as being not a very sophisticated people who are probably in that phase of using things for rituals and all, whether they would, you know, <laughs> The so the CD-ROMs are going to survive. <laughs> what else? Um, well, I mean, uh, I suppose, uh, well, nuclear waste to the extent that, uh, well, you know, it will, I'm sure by then, all be in vitrified glass and stainless steel and, you know, put in the bottom of a mine and monitored and all the rest of it. And maybe after enough number amount of time, the radioactivity will anyway uh, be gone. So, so, yeah, yeah, so on. Mm. So that, of course. Um, and... Uh, in uh, well the pyramids well that's where the human intervention comes the pyra pyramids have survived for so long so did the assyrian you know wonderful artifacts survived for 3000 years but then the human human intervention it's when you know humans decide to to interact or intervene with the artifacts even stone gets destroyed we've been seeing that very recently you know events in mosul and i mean of course this kind of iconoclasm has happened across cultures uh, you know the, the 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 christians broke a lot of greek temples um, you know, uh, in, in Islam, a lot of iconoclasm also took place. And, and in, in India, we saw the Babri Masjid being demolished by, uh, you know, uh, extremist yeah. Hindus. And uh, that's, a, 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 you know, kind of, and, you know, the Portuguese pulled down some Buddhist pagodas in Nagapatram. So this has gone on right through uh, history. So what artifacts will survive? You know, even the pyramids could get pulled down. We don't know. Or, you know, the man-made destruction is, is a total unknown, I suppose. So when you look at an archaeological artifact, Sharda, let's say, what's the difference between finding the spoon that we've referred to a few times and the human bone? Difference between the spoon and the? Let's say a human bone, a piece of human bone. Okay. What is the difference between the finds? Um, you mean in terms of the materiality uh, of the bone or... Uh, well, there is, of course, a distinction between organic and inorganic things, of course. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, well, some type of organic material uh, does preserve quite well, in this case, bone and all that. Again, that's because there's a lot of the calcium and those kinds of minerals. So a lot of it depends on really the reactivity of the of the elements present as well. I mean, some things decay more because of the uh, the fact that uh, an, an 
a metal has a baser metal will react more it has uh, the well, electrode no potential yeah. exactly so it's 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 interesting that uh, probably as many years from now gold will still be there <laughs> diamond <laughs> will still be around and so that's also had a lot of socio cultural significance uh, wouldn't you say diamonds so, are forever yeah. <laughs> someone someone is selling it to us saying that but yeah <laughs> But did you notice that we already have uh, uh, that one of the, the differentiations that we might want to make is not so much the difference between an object and a thing, but between a thing and and what we might call an element or something elemental? Because we already, uh, from even at all the different levels of discourse that we've exchanged, um, the thing is really it seems to be a sort of a composite affair. I mean, it's it is always. Um, there are many elements that uh, that come into its m- you know into its thingness, mm. whatever that might be. Yeah. Uh, and um, and what do you mean by element? You just mean the at- atomized. E- I'm, I'm 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 speaking very you know simply in a sort of quotidian sense. I mean you know that which we understand is not reducible. Yeah. You know, more sure. or less. Sure. And um and while a thing although we we tend to we tend to think of, of, of a thing as something that is singular, integral, solid or what have you, uh in fact, uh, I mean you no, know, we already in different ways with different different using different languages, we've 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 shown how they are in fact uh as I said, composite affairs. They are they are they are um you know outcomes of of all kinds of things uh coming together uh all kinds of elements sorry coming together yeah um and i think that and i don't quite i'm not prepared yet to say what the difference is but there there is definitely a difference and and we need to think beyond the obvious the thing that comes to mind very obviously that a thing is always singular uh specific solid uh, and so on and so forth and that's usually in a kind of simple mm-hmm way that the, the way that we 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 so think of I, things. Can I ask a question to Stratus? Yeah, please. Yes. So, uh yeah. I understand uh, what you're saying. I don't think that we'll talk about things and objects uh that, that I'm mean, differentiate between them for too long after this. <laughs> yes. I just want to ask you one question. I mean, look at the pyramid. The pyramid was meant as a meant as a tomb. It stopped being a tomb long time back because the bodies are gone, everything is gone from there. but i would uh, not i would still call it an object it's an object of veneration it's an object of awe it is not really a thing it has not become a thing because it has become you know obsolete or become uh, useless as far as the original functionality goes what would you call it no no i think uh, i think in so far as um in so far as as i i not me personally but but any kind of of um a person uh um uh, contemplates or looks at the pyramids any a pyramid um one can say that there that th- there's that thing over there i mean that big uh, you know you know pointy triangular thing you know and i'm i'm speaking on purpose in the sort of vulgar way mm-hmm. um and that obviously it was uh, it's but it's thingness there are different ways to talk about its thingness we can talk about its materiality you know what it's made out of uh we can talk historically about what we think it meant for people that existed so long ago and they are no longer here uh obviously it means something else for the people who are here uh, in that land and outside that land who come to see it um and and if there is a difference there is a difference between thing and thing and object as i said it's but it's a philosophical one yeah um and and it, we might want to say maybe a little playfully that if, if 
anything uh, you know, gets to become objectified. And it, yeah. it, it becomes objectified in, in innumerable ways, really. Not in just one way. Because, uh, because subjects, because the subjects do the objectifying work, are, again, innumerable. <laughs> and they are innumerable in, in time, history, geography, and what have you. So, um, so I do think that, that a pyramid uh, can be identified as a thing. Um, but as much as something that in, in some ways may be somewhat intangible, let's say, uh, well, an idea or, uh, you know, a poem. I mean, you know, um, a poem is obviously a thing. I mean, that's, that's, it's a created, a constructed thing. It's uh, obviously a thing. Yes, Not because you're a poet, that is. Well, I mean, uh, for a poet, uh, I, I'm, I don't in know. In what sense is a poem a thing? Because it is... Um, and we go back to the definition you were using um, a while ago. It's uh, comprised of... Um, well, I mean, I, I, I already, you know, disputed the fact that a thing must be solid, uh, sure. uh, tangible, sure. that's, that's uh, and cool. so forth. So, um, or integral. A, a poem is a thing um, in, in the sense that it's, um, that it's a, a constructed uh, form. It's a, it's, a, it's a form that did not exist... Naturally, yeah, uh, and it came to be uh, out of an act, uh, I would say, of creation, um, and it gets to exist on its own after it has been created. Therefore, one might say, objectified in the process, interpreted, venerated, vilified, yeah, <laughs> forgotten, yeah. Uh, there's all kinds. Of, that's forgotten, also an objectification uh, uh, in many ways, and so. Um, and certainly an idea is as well, um, again, because it's the same thing. I mean, I, you know, ideas don't, you know, don't exist in the universe. Uh, they exist in the universe of history because once they've been created, that's what I'm saying, they are, they are the things of life you know, that we inherit and, 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 and destroy or, or, or reconceptualize, reconfigure, uh, improve upon or what have you. So uh, I would, I'm, in that sense, you understand a little more liberal with... Uh, that's the right word. I don't know what the right word is. Yeah. With with the notion of what a thing is. Yeah. Uh, on purpose, so as to kind of uh, you know recede from from the attachment to what in fact is we considered you know something that is literally tangible. I mean, we can pick it up with our hands, which is usually how uh, uh, that's what first comes to mind. And 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 a poem may be tangible for one person and not so tangible for another. Clearly. Uh, yeah, um, so and even what is tangible about it may be very different exactly. from one person to the next and so on and so forth. Or what is mm -hmm. tangible about it may be different from one age to the next, one era to the next and so on. Which reminds me that I was quite struck by this uh, verse by Rumi, which is very simple, but I think in a way captures a little, uh -huh. lot of what we're trying to say here, which says, uh, I died as a mineral and became a plant. I died as a plant and became an animal. I died as an animal and then I was ma man. So why fear dying? So that sense of permanence that in a way we've moved from, you know, what was immovable and then the plant is sort of emerging out of there's your no rock anyway. anyway and then there's something in movement the animal and then man and then who knows what other form of being will come out you know what consciousness or whatever but which also brings me to I was wondering since I'm here with a physicist and I started off in a way a little bit as a physicist you know <laughs> the uh, I suppose uh, you know uh, well it, it to, to a certain extent what I've been interested also with you know coming to the uh, since Stasi was, uh, was also asking about the dance because one 
one of the things that drew me into this, uh, attempting to look at the connections between uh, archaeology, science, and, and so on, was also the dance and the image of the dancing Nataraja image, uh, which uh, Kumaraswamy, of course, very beautifully described it as um, uh, poetry, but nonetheless, science, you know, this depiction which he interpreted from Tamil texts is, uh, you know, balancing creation and destruction. But of course, there are other readings. It's also a case of how, uh, you know, uh, an object or a thing can have... What does that mean, poetry, but yet science? Well, that was his, uh, you know, kind of response to the icon in a way, because, sure. you, know, you know, an object, uh, you know, inspires icons. But to some extent, it was maybe based on his reading of some of those uh, Tamil Shaiva Siddhantic texts, you know, where there is this notion of maybe the balancing act of, you know, the balancing the drum of creation and the fire of destruction and so on. Although there are other readings, for instance, the art historian Padma Kaimal has also pointed out that, you know, the Nataraja itself may have been... Uh, like a a symbol of the political power of the Cholas yeah. and so on. And then in my own um, uh, work, uh, in fact, I found from the archaeometallurgical analysis that probably one could date this icon back to the Pallava period, uh -huh. which is slightly earlier, tying in with some of the devotional bhakti poetry of people like Manika Vachikar, where is the, there is this mystical sense as well. He talks about how, uh, you know, uh, you know, Shiva creates, uh, 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 dances and, you know, creates and destroys this world and all else. And he also says... Uh, um, you know, uh, the, this verse where, you know, connecting the, the fact that there's no beginning and end and uh, the, the middle, you know. Mundiya mudal iridiyo manai. And um, of course, and also at Chidambaram, you have a, a very nascent way of maybe putting together this idea of form and formlessness. You have the anthropomorphic dancing form and you have the formless, you know, the uh, akasha lingam, this curtain space. In a very kind of nascent way, some kind yeah. of intuitive understanding, which, uh, you know, is, all it is is an intuition. But, you know, perhaps you could tell us a bit more on th that aspect of the things, you know, the... the, the but, the, I mean, do things, thing? clearly things interact with each other, don't they? I mean, whether or not human beings existed, things would be interacting with each other. And there are, like, physical uh, forces at work and yeah, all I'm forms. sure. I mean, we, we should... Uh, maybe I'm jumping the gun. You're, uh, you're at some point going to ask us about what is going to happen if uh, human beings stop existing or life yeah. stops, stops, stops Let's existing. ask that right away. I mean, so what you have, if you none of us existed? You've you you asked <laughs> it right away. Uh, again... Uh, we should remember that when uh, life wasn't there, human beings wasn't there, weren't there, things somehow conspired to make life, make human beings out of nothing. They could do it, they could, they could do it again. I mean, uh, you know, in organic They could better, do it again, so we'll they be could brought do it back. Again. Yeah. So things are uh, not as, uh, you know, inanimate as we think they are. They are, of course, inanimate, but they have the power to create life out of something that we don't know yet. I mean, these, these are some of the mysteries that probably should, should a be... A biogenesis, yeah, yeah, just yeah, life yeah, coming yeah. out of inorganic yeah, so, matter. You know? Yeah, so inorganic matter is uh, quite powerful. I mean, it can do a lot of things that we don't know what uh, is going to happen. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. And do you... That's spooky. <laughs> That's spooky, but it happened. It happened once. It ha yes. It and probably happened. next time <laughs> next time it will happen faster because uh, there will be some memory of uh, what happened last time. And Well, the strange thing yeah. is, is, though, oh, I agree with you, of course. That's, uh, I mean, it's a fact. But, um, but those things, those inorganic things that created life out of nothing... Um, are unable to uh, account for themselves. I mean, in their in 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 a sense way. that we understand. I mean, this reason. well, in the sense that we understand it at least, or they have not communicated to us. Let's put it that way. We can <laughs> we can say that maybe. <laughs> you want to be spoken to. Uh, well, I mean, insofar, uh, what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say, and I'm I'm being clumsy about it, is is that. Um, 
I mean, we are positing a thinkhood uh, backwards to something that existed before we existed, and even we we can account we can account for how we came to exist by virtue of that. So a sense of agency to. But I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of approach your question. I I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure what what it means to have no human factor in this discussion. Um, I'm I'm not sure really what that means. You know, there there was a certain time. This I'm jumping discourses here, but it's somewhat relevant. There was a time in, uh, let's say, around the 1960s. What are things like Jupiter? Well, I mean, before we even get to another planet, there was there was an idea one time that was floating that was very fashionable that. Um, that history just happens, it just moves. It, 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 it was the, the phrase was history without a subject. History I mean, without uh, a subject. Because structures really essentially make things happen. And that... Um, a very and, Hegelian and, kind of... Uh, well, actually, would have, they would have think of it as... It was a kind of a Marxist idea. They would have think, think of it as structural Marxism, you know, as anti-Hegelian. That's not important. Uh-huh. But, um, but that kind of thinking is always been a little odd to me. I don't quite understand. Why? Well, because the, that kind of thing was created by human beings, by subjects. You know? <laughs> I mean, it didn't just happen by itself. So there's always some strange contradiction but, uh, uh, when we're talking, you know, straight thinkhood mm-hmm. or thinkhood in itself. What does this mean exactly? I don't, I don't quite understand it. And I was also wondering now that uh, uh, this is here, because how much of this notion of of thing is also uh, driven by language? Like in 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 English, there is a word such as thing. Probably in Urdu, I don't know whether it comes in from Persian. Again, you have thing called cheese, but it's not only things in its physicality, but it's the whole gamut. You know, something else which is emotional in Tamil as well. You have porul, which is the object, but also. It's matter. It's matter that this matter is troubling me, or whatever. So it can, or this thing is troubling me. It can be used in our, like Yeats, uh, you know, talks about things falling apart, which can be like Shinoa Ashbe also talks about it in the context of Nigeria or Africa. It's like uh, you know what he's talking about is the inexorable falling apart of traditional ways of life in in the face of European colonization. But Sanskrit, interestingly, I can't really pinpoint a term for thing which is so all encompassing. I can think of maybe saman, which is very much a physical because thing. Sanskrit but probably doesn't take permanence may, that maybe, seriously. Sorry? Th- does thingness need a sense or notion of permanence? I think... I think uh, Whether we a, speak of it in the context mm. of poetry mm. or... Uh, well, I mean, you know, I, I don't... It's good. It's a good question. I was just thinking now, what, what's in Greek? You know, you're Greek, doing yes. the language and, of course, you know, the, oh my what's, God. What's, the, what's thing? Well, the word is, is pragma, which actually... Pragma. You know, yeah, pra- which, uh, which means actually in, in, in Greek, it also means real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, yeah. you know, so so for them, I'm talking about the ancients, the, the, uh, the thing is tantamount to the real. Um, so, but we can reverse it. You know, that's very important, meaning um, uh, there's a thinghood to reality, a thingness to reality, uh, meaning without There can thingness. be an imaginary thing. No, that has also a certain reality of its own, but, but it's of its own. It's, it's, mm. it's another, it's a sort of secondary level. It's the phantasm, actually. That's what the word would be for, for the imagined. Um, and uh, so here, the, I mean, these archaic languages are kind of interesting because they're always, there's a multiplicity of meanings for one word, you know? Yeah. And so... Um, 
So maybe I am, in fact, contradicting myself now, thinking <laughs> there may be certain reality to things. Yeah, they thought there was certain reality to things, regardless yeah, yeah. of humans, is what I'm saying, yeah, yeah. which is contradicting oh, I what I just okay. said before. But, uh, uh, but actually, it's very interesting that in Sanskrit, the word for thing uh, has also the same relation due to reality. It is vastu. Mm. Vastu uh, goes to vastav. Vastav means uh, real. Mm. So, uh, by definition, Vastu is real. I mean, it has to be... So, is real. it that we say that, I mean, maybe we can say, totally speculating here and not knowing, uh, that, uh, you know, archaic societies had, uh, you know, a certain kind of connection to materiality. I mean, to a certain, sure. what we call materiality. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Which they, which for them was the kind of primary level of reality. I mean, which, without them knowing, obviously, all this complexity about atomic matter uh, mm. that we do now, mm. um, because this is what you're you're confirming yes. the same. Uh, yes. Uh, so in in that sense, th that is true. But uh, in ancient India, uh, the sense of reality was also very diffuse. In the sense that it was very easy to think of uh, you know life after life, many lives. Mm. So it was not. It, they were not really pragmatic in that sense. So no. No. I'm not saying being pragmatic. Mm. Uh, pragmatic is the way in English. You know, in English is taken on a whole other uh, dimension. Um, Right. I, I, I mean, I would say that even in their in their in 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 creating these structures, which are technically metaphysical, mm -hmm. um, there was a certain kind of materiality to their metaphysics. That's what I'm saying. If that, this makes Possibly. any sense. Possibly. Uh, meaning that it was just as real. Yeah. Um, right. And um, which is something strangely enough that in the scientific society that we live in, I meaning in the society that understands matter in incredibly complex ways. Uh, we may at the same time have lost, you know, that that sense, and we are always seeking to dematerialize a reality for some reason, and maybe I don't know why, you know. Mm. And and let me ask you this, Tatis: Do you think uh, things have a social life amongst themselves? No, no, I can't. I would never say that. I could never say that because for me, the social is entirely human. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they have a social life in so uh, insofar as they are part of a world. Uh, a, a strangely natural world, I would say, and that's sort of controversial, that we call that that uh, that natural wor world for humans mm -hmm. that we call society. And uh, no, but um, when when there are a set of things, let's say in a cupboard or on a desk. I mean, there's a sort of thing set of things here, on the table here. Uh, in front of us. There's, there's a table and 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 plants and and uh, some bottles of water and what have you and some uh, you know objects of ours. Mm. Uh, these things, obviously, one might say they're certainly in, in interrelation. They're in spatial interrelation, first of all. Um, they may be decoration, meaning... But there are know, some and so formations and some in, in interrelationships that you, seem you, better to us. But you can talk about them having a social life in themselves. Amongst themselves. What about uh, the ideas like what Bruno Latour puts across about needing, having, you know, well, uh, things in terms of, you know, representation for things or parliament of things or whatever, do they, does it... Well, you know, this, this isn't, I mean, Latour... This thing of freeing things, just the way it's of freedom. It's, it's a notion and it could be highly speculative. It could just be baloney. But it, it's a tendency... Um, it's not that recent, actually, although it is recently has gained a lot of... Uh, it's not recent. Uh, no, because I would say... Uh, my God, I, I could... The th first thing that comes to mind is uh, uh, thinkers of the Frankfurt School who are philosophers... Yeah. Essentially, social philosophers, social political philosophers, um, a person like uh, Theodor Adorno, German philosopher, who actually really wanted to uh, imagine uh, the standpoint uh, of the thing. You know, how, how does how might the world look f 
from the standpoint of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for this was was in a way to um, to break down the the uh, sort of I don't know what you call the sort of the hegemonic gla- glance of the, of the human of the subject. Human that, yes, yes, that basically control with a mind and their thought and reason and what have you, everything else. So it's not a okay. It's become but much more complex now. Uh, but there's a certain tendency. Latour is very famous for this. There's a, uh, there's a very interesting book by uh, this philosopher, American philosopher Jane Bennett, that, that the title of which is Vibrant Matter. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, she really is, goes into this discussion. And, and I mean, obviously, she doesn't say that something that we call inanimate f- in terms of physics is animate, but, she's, but she is, in fact, you know, imagining in what sense uh, material things uh, exert forces uh, in the world uh, that may, in fact, uh, change the way human beings do things. I mean, from you know, it's yeah. a philosophical standpoint, and uh, and you know, I, I, even in a very real way, uh, right? And you know, one may object to certain of the, her arguments. That's not the issue here. Yeah, uh, there is something to that, and there is this tendency, and I, and I, the way I understand this tendency is. It's a kind of resistance against an anthropocentric uh, hmm. control, which I'm yeah, all for. Yeah, this emancipatory tendency. Let's free uh, up things now. Right, but but I think that but we got to keep in mind the the kind of irony here. Yes, that it is human beings that think that they're yes. the ones who are in some ways thinking of ways to go against themselves. Therefore, uh, <laughs> whatever they whatever they say and do and think philosophically. Might it's be a said to be to begin with. It's exactly. To might actually be to just a with, to continuation. To yeah. But yeah. I, I would sort of uh, try to differ in an interesting way to show that, you know, things uh, do have a social life, and science is getting more and more close to finding the social life out. Let's. But what do How do you mean hmm. social, social life? So, yeah, I, 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 don't I mean, want to understand I, that. Yeah, mm. I don't mean like a collection of things which, which are here by accident. That is not society. Society is when, when you come together for, for some kind of common good, for some kind of, to serve some function, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you would define the society that way. So uh, this is my, the thing that I hinted at in the beginning, this is self-organization. Yeah. So now, for the first time, I think, at least in my career, I see some of my colleagues uh, sort of getting interested in, in, a, in a completely subjective argument as far as science, is go, uh, science goes. <laughs> it is actually anathema yeah. to us. We never, never talk of subjectivity at all. Yeah. But in this case... Uh, when we talk of self-organization, one of my colleagues has been saying that you know you can have self-organization only uh, if it is serving a function. For example, birds come together when when they're flying in a formation. They come together to form the formation because it saves energy. It, uh, it's uh, and it's uh, useful for them to fly that way. Similarly, uh, atoms come together, molecules come together. Yeah, if you I leave mean, them for a long time, exactly. Uh, what we do so often is that we build up crystals uh, by taking a vapor of an atom and letting it fall on a on a on a on a flat plane. Uh-huh. When the atoms fall fall on that flat plane and they are giving a, given a little bit of thermal energy to move about, they always arrange arrange themselves in some kind of geometrical pattern which builds up ultimately to, to, to the lattice. Nobody yeah. tells them to do to do that. That is social behavior, of course. You can always say that that is because they are it may not, yeah, they're minimizing yeah. energy or something like that. I mean, some some trivial explanation, but even <laughs> in a, in a, at, at a bigger scale, I mean, slightly bigger objects also often come together and form some kind of structure which has a function, and uh, these these functions are are what I would call a kind of social function. I mean, 
I can't give a very quick, uh, no, it's easy example. It's because, a very interesting notion. But I think I think it is happening, and it's not not happening in a in a trivial way like we are talking about now. But it's happening in a very deep way, which we are still understanding. We are maybe close to understanding it, but it is it is very interesting because this is exactly how life formed. It and was because of self-organization. And it's happening more in the virtual yeah, yeah. sort of world, or is it happening? No, you know, it's, it's also no, no, happening it's in the physical world. Proteins are folding together, yeah. and yeah. carbon so molecules. So when you're talking about molecules coming together, when when for example uh, body organs form, they form incredibly complex structures by just uh, self-assembling. Mm. And self-assembly to form compl complex structures is uh, quite well known, and it happens always because they are trying to gain something. They are trying to go go into some particular direction. Like, for example, your kidney forms in a completely porous way. The molecules come together and form a very porous structure because it wants to sieve uh, stuff out of that, out of the liquid that is passing through it. So this is a, this is a, you know in in biology it is very very well known. But even in any yeah, objects, uh, I, I know yeah. of, uh, the work of these two Chilean biologists, uh, uh, Humberto Maturana and uh, Francisco Maturana. Varela, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, who Varela. wrote this That's book right. uh, Autopoiesis and Cognition mm -hmm. about really really elemental. Matter, yes, uh, yes. you know, self-organizing, um, and and it is quite fascinating. They use in very interesting the phrase, the phrase po poesis, right? Auto I mean, a certain a certain yeah. kind of poetics, self poetics, because mm -hmm. autopoesis, right? Uh, and, and a certain knowledge, even that that seems to be a really a knowledge in a way that is way way beyond the way in the anthropocentric way of thinking of knowledge that exists yeah. in the in the physical structures in the molecules themselves. Mm -hmm. But then where would you place the Gaia sort of notion of a self-regulatory structure of the world with some like Lovelock and all uh, that? There is a self-regulatory structure that comes out of uh, some kind of mechanism which is not known. You can call it uh, some kind of you know universal consciousness. We don't want to call it that. <laughs> but uh, there is something that happens that uh, leads you to that. We don't have a mechanism for that really. But very, very, very simple things like for example uh, you have seen uh, water rolling off a lotus leaf. Yes. Right? It always rolls off, rolls off, never stays there. It's called a hydrophobic surface. Yes. That hydrophobic surface comes, we know now, because of very complex microstructures yes. that are there on the surface of the, of the leaf. Yeah. And that happens because the leaf doesn't want to get burdened by the, by the water uh, collecting on it, doesn't want to get dirty. On the other hand, flower petals would like to stay hydrated. So they're hydrophilic. They have they are, they are hydrophilic, but they would like like water to actually stick to them. Yeah. And but not cover their surface. If if it covers their surface, they have a problem. Yeah. They would like some water, but not uh, completely. And they, I mean, both of these, both lotus leaves and, for example, rose petals, have quite complex structures built into them, which is again coming out of some kind of self-assembly. But you know, biological self self-assembly is easier to understand. So maybe we don't worry too much about that. But uh, how much would you yeah. extend that? How much would you extend that to more macroscopic, macroscopic objects around us? And when you arrange your wardrobe, is that? <laughs> I think at that level we are losing the sense of what uh, I'm talking about. Uh, what I'm but talking why? about? Why? Why would that be? What I'm talking about because is because some of the I'll planets have come together. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah plan planets have to come together, but that is pr probably because they have been born out of a kind of common origin. They have not really come together. They have not self-assembly. It's not, it's not yeah, assembly, yeah. that's right. So the self-assembly technically occurs when the things are small enough for thermodynamics to, to, to mm. take, take effect. Not for large objects which are not really controlled by... Kind of links to the concept yeah, of phase yeah. transition you were talking yeah, about. It's right, another right, phase right. almost. So the things need to be slightly small to get self-organized. I mean, they cannot... Uh, you would say that? You would say that with certainty? Yes, certainly. Okay. 
So you need, need some thermal motion to take place. So as long as things are not at absolute zero, if things are at absolute zero, nothing would have happened. Mm. There wouldn't have been any life form forming. There wouldn't have been any interesting thing happening. But it's just a thermal motion, just the second law of thermodynamics which that allows a lot of things which are not normally accessible, not normally you know, feasible. But then I I, what I want to know then is, you know, when you look at uh, people that eschew materiality who don't want to have anything to do with things, I mean, I'm thinking also of somebody like this 12th century Kannada poetess Akka Mahadevi who, you know, rejected all forms of things, including clothing or whatever. Is that, in, in that sense, then going against what is, you know, a scientific way or, or sort of normal way of proceeding because now we're just getting more and more materialistic, you know? Mm. Uh, uh, and so is that the only way or what about... You know, isn't, where does one fit in into a scientific parameter? The, the, or is, is there not a natural need that also should, should come in as a self-regulatory way that we that need to step back from materialism and, and you know, get away from the realm of things? I have an answer. I, I mean, I think that the one thing that we're not actually talking about, uh, uh, again, because uh, it's interesting, the word, the thing leads us in a direction toward the, toward the physical universe in some fashion or another um, is uh, what I would say is sort of the psychical universe. And um, that is something that is uh, really, I mean, it, it's presumably, you know, um, uh, advanced animals also have a psychical universe, but in any case, the human uh, psychical universe is uh, extraordinarily capacious in fact, interminably capacious, and it can create all kinds of uh, structures and practices and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and not simply ways of thinking, really ways of being, um, which can range from the sublime to the most horrifying, right? And, and that reaction is really, the reaction to let go of all things is something that, 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 is, that happens in a kind of psychical sphere. I mean, whether it's a conscious decision or it's simply a kind of expression uh, of affect, or or or, or in, it, it, it's not it's n it's not in the same domain of uh, of material things coming together. It, it is some it is a it is something that and it's also beyond culture. I would say even it, it is it, in yeah. It, it, but why it do we feel that impulse as well? Sorry? You know, why do we feel that impulse as well that we want to escape from the oh, realm of that, things? Oh, that that may be because we might feel that it's uh, we're being yes inundated and suffocated by material things. That that certainly in the world that we live in, that's the case. But there are also other people who embrace this with extraordinary uh, passion. Uh, they go in fact in the other direction. To me, those are psychical expressions. Regardless, it doesn't. I'm not going to judge them one way or another. Um, I mean, there, there is meaning in them. There is meaning in things. Course. There is meaning in materials that we acquire in a certain kind of way. Of course, there is. I mean, that the question of meaning again, though, for me, is something that is projected. I don't think this bottle has a meaning in itself. Yeah. I mean, I, it can have again innumerable meanings. Yeah. That we might come up with uh, in relation to it. But we are the ones who are uh, essentially uh, creating meaning in relation to this thing. Interesting. Why don't we spend the last two, three minutes just uh, speculating on the future? I think we've touched upon it in a little bit. Is, is, is the archaeologist of uh, 2,000 years later going to be very similar to you, Sharda? <laughs> <laughs> in, in the concepts they bring to the table. 
Well, maybe my DNA will get stored somewhere and somebody might clone one of me. I think somewhere uh, along the line, when we think of this deep-seated sort of need for permanence going back to <laughs> the early Egyptians, mummifying oneself. For but the concepts, the yeah. concepts one brings to the table. I mean, you clearly look at the artifacts you want unearth with, with, with a certain conceptual vocabulary. Yeah. Is that going to undergo change in a manner that is... Um, so this 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 pen discovered two thousand years ago is going to be the same. Uh, well, it, it's difficult uh, to say. It, it's you see, we are now question. dealing with a whole range of materials that we don't even know how they degrade and what's going to happen to. We we have no idea what's going to ha- what this plastic bottle, for instance, which will probably you know it's it's not very degradable, but we don't know what will happen to it. You know. 2000 years hence what the you know the thermal and other conditions are going to be and what uh, i mean uh, you know there's so many other in, in you know uh, astronomical phenomena what phenomena whatever that can happen so in a way we uh, you know what has happened is that uh, over this uh, over the past so many centuries there were just eight or so metals that were used commonly and just you know just yeah, a few no. commonly used metals uh, or metals or elements or any kinds of materials but over the past let's say since the industrial revolution it's almost exponential the kind of new materials that have been using polymers ceramics uh, nanomaterials yeah. superconductors semiconductors and we don't actually know how those will actually survive or last we you know we have done some studies but we haven't had you know enough of longevity to really kind of look at what all of those will transform into so it's, it's interesting uh, uh, what is the future of the thing? I mean, 2,000 years later, you'd be saying the same thing. <laughs> I'm already an anachronism, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the future would be. I mean, in terms of... Uh, Will they have poetry in the future? Uh, I think as, human, as long as human beings exist, yes, of course, poetry will exist. I mean, oh, that's, that's just elemental. That's, <laughs> that's elemental. That's about as that's elemental as it comes. Yeah. No, no, really, I, I actually believe that's the case. I mean, even in the most horrifying conditions. Uh, of course, you know, the, we, I say this, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, the same animal, you know, the human animal may make, uh, you know, um, pretty, get pretty close to destroy this planet. I know the guy, people think that's just sort of part of the way the planet is. But really, I mean, uh, from a certain standpoint, the world that we understand and know can easily not exist in almost in a flash, almost in a flash. So, you know, the capacity, the internal capacity for poetry in the future has to be, you know, uh, has to be juxtaposed to the fact that uh, the capacity for this sort of total destruction. Interesting. Uh, Pushan, why don't we just end with uh, the last remark from you? Okay. Uh, I would just expand on what Stathis said. I think it was very interesting. That as long as human beings are there, there will be poetry. I would go so far as to say that, you know, we might come to a stage where we have more and more androids, robots, or things like that among us. What would distinguish them from us would be whether poetry remains or not. Yeah, that's, I agree with that, exactly. It's interesting. So, uh, interesting. Thank you so much to all of you for making it. Uh, we appreciate you coming over and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> we enjoyed that. Thank you.